Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to uh, great to have you here this morning. And we've been in the book of Nehemiah for a few weeks now, and uh, we're going to be continuing this right until the end of this month. We'll be looking at Nehemiah, mainly just the story of Nehemiah from the start of his ministry in in Jerusalem up until about chapter seven, and then Nehemiah kind of disappears from the scene, and some other things happen for a number of chapters, and then eventually. Uh, Nehemiah comes back. Uh, he spends 12 years as the governor of Judah. Then he goes back, and he's back in the service of King Artaxerxes because he had set a, a time, a kind of a time window frame uh, for his time in Jerusalem. Then he goes back, and then he comes back to Jerusalem at the very end of the book, and uh, we'll see if it's a happy ending or not. <laughs> not all stories have, have happy endings. Uh, if you want to read ahead, uh, I'd encourage you to do that because there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of good stuff in Nehemiah. So we're going to be in chapter three this morning. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn there, we will read Nehemiah chapter three. <clears throat> Flip the page again. Yeah. So here we go. We're ready for this one. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Mermoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, the son of Meshezabal, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoaites repaired. But the nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joyada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid the beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Meronothite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel, the son of Herahiah, the goldsmiths repaired. Next to him Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Harum Af, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaneah, repaired. Melchijah, the son of Hiram, and Hashub, son of Pahath Moab, repaired the other section and the towers of the ovens. Next to them, Shalom, son of Haloshah, ruler of the half of the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors and its bolts and its bars and repaired the thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Melchiah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of beth Hakam erem repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors and its bolts and its bars. And Shulam, the son of Kol-Hose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. 
He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah and the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. And after him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of the half-district of Beth-zur, repaired to the point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired Rahum, the son repaired. Rahum, the son of Benai, next to him, Hashabiah, the ruler of the half-district of Kela, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Hinadad, ruler of half of the district of Kela, next to him, Azer, the son of Yeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory and the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests and the men of the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house, after them, Azariah, son of Maaseah, the son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Bin-Nui, son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Pa'al, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress to the tower of the projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pedaiah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to the point opposite the water gate on the east in the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. And after them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shulamiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Well, this is the word of the Lord. And why did I just read all that? <laughs> that's, that's, why is this here? Uh, how many of you, if, if you're reading through uh, the Bible with this kind of, uh, there's a number of us reading through the Bible this year, and, and Joshua is a great book, right? It's, it's full of action except until you get to the part where they're apportioning the land and chapter after chapter after chapter is, well, these people lived in this place and here's where these, you know, and it's like just geography that you don't know. And, and, and you know, unless you're looking at a map, same with this passage or, or like Chronicles, like getting through Chronicles is tough. Getting through numbers is sometimes a little tough too, because there's these, these long passages that we go, why do I need to know this? Do I need to know this? What is this all about? It's so tempting to skip this chapter in Nehemiah. To pass it off as just another one of those long list of names and heart that are hard to pronounce. 
and it's presented in such a formulaic, repetitive way, it's... I mean, how many of you just kind of checked out halfway through me reading that? Like, really? Like, like honestly, you know, I was having trouble focusing, too. I was starting to think about other things. I was just like, oh, is this over yet? What possible application can you draw out of a passage like this? Why preach on a passage like this? Isn't this one of the things you just skip? What would this have to say to us today? And when I was teaching Pentateuch, we would often hit this too, you know. Uh, you, you hit those passages in the Pentateuch, you, you read Leviticus and you go, oh, is this over yet? You know, it's so repetitive. We have to remember something. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. And this is like one of the foundational scriptures for our doctrine of scripture. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so the people of God would be equipped for every good work. Or 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21, you know, no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, but men wrote as they were carried along by the spirit of God. So there's there's gotta be a reason for this beyond we just, you know, it's not just information. So our questions as to the importance and the relevance of chapter three of Nehemiah move from exasperation and rhetorical questions to we need to be thoughtful and reflective. What does this passage have to say to us today and what applications can we draw from it? We're going to start on the compositional level, why the chapter is placed in the narrative of Nehemiah at this point. Because that's, there's, there's, I think, a significance to that as well. It's, it's not just that he included this at this point, but why does he include it here? Why is it at this point in the story? So compositional issue, and then we're going to move on to the content issue of what's in this chapter. Now, so, so compositional issue four, first, how the story is told is important. Uh, narrative timing, all, all those things are, are important when you read the Bible. And unless you've read a few chapters ahead already, you might not pick this up. If you turn to Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1, um, he says, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Remember that for a second. And then jump down to uh, verse 13 and 15. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid. And he's talking about people that are giving him a bad time. Uh, so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And so there in chapter 6 we get, you know, here, here's Nehemiah saying, well, you know, we, we've got it this far, uh, but the doors aren't in place yet. Now there was something that came up in chapter 3 a number of times. These guys built this part of the wall and they put the doors in place. So Nehemiah chapter 3 is a bit of a retrospective recounting of all the people that worked on the project after it was completed. 
Chapter 6 says the doors weren't in place yet, and chapter 3 says that they already were. The simplest explanation is that chapter 3 is a retrospective account of the workforce. Now, here's the thing. Ancient narratives don't follow strict chronological reporting practices. Our insistence is a very, a very Western European insistence on linear chron chronology isn't shared by the ancient Near, Near Eastern mindset. Best example of this, Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations. Here's all the different tribes and nations uh, organized by their language. Genesis chapter 11, there was only one language until the end of chapter 11. You go, what, are, are these backwards? Uh, actually, yes, and there's a reason for it. Won't get into that. But there's a very deliberate narrative point to that but the key thing to remember when we're reading the Bible is that their chronology isn't as important to them as it is to us. Their interest was more theological and social. They were not putting together as, as it happens report. They were constructing a report for a very specific purpose, a purpose that included later readers. The, the, these were written down not as an account to, of just uh, what happened, but an account to teach uh, the people who would read it later, who needed to know the story that was being told and how it was being told relates directly to why it is being told. So why does the author place this account here instead of just waiting until after chapter 6 and verse 15? That would be the natural place. The walls were done. We finished it 52 days. It was over. Oh, by the way, here's all the people that helped out on the project and what they did. I think there are three main reasons why the author chose to put this right here, right now. First of all, this chapter supports the statement in chapter 2.18 and in, later in 4.6 where the people responded to the vision and they moved on it. And it was not only the heart of Nehemiah as leader that was moved to action, but the people of God overall were moved to action. Because for a vision to become reality, the hearts of the people of God need to be captured and excited by the reality that God is calling forth and the vision he is giving. So the, so the author wants to say right here, he's like, yeah, we started, we started this project and here's all the people. Like it just, it just spread immediately. And everybody got involved, except for a few, you know, the, the higher-ups in the Tekoite clan. They didn't want to do any work. But first of all, it just supports that statement. This was a move, this spread immediately. Nehemiah was given this vision. Nehemiah was given leadership. Nehemiah was given the resources. And then as he communicated it, boom, it started happening. And it spread. Second thing, the text celebrates the win before it recounts the struggle. Implementing vision always comes with conflict. You cannot move people forward from where they are and where they are comfortable without conflict. It always happens. And we're going to look at that for the next two weeks because the next four chapters, chapter four, five, and six, are how the enemies didn't like what was going on, and even the people of Jerusalem themselves didn't really, they were struggling to see why they should bother it all again. So here, Nehemiah is recounting these names 
and the fact that they finished the project before kind of backing up and showing how hard it was to get the job done. He celebrates the win before recounting the struggle. The people responded. The work was completed. A large and varied task force came together, worked together, completed what they set out to do. And the authors lift our eyes from how hard and how difficult it was to the fact that it was done. Without this chapter placed exactly where it is, if it came after the statement that the project was finished, we would have read more about the struggle and the opposition than anything else. But he paints the picture of a finished project before a hard project. Sometimes we need to, to visualize, we need to know that this is going to, this is going to happen and this, we're, we're going to be able to do this. And even though it's hard, and even though a whole bunch of people don't want us to succeed, and even when the, the problems come from within her own camp, God can make a way through all of that conflict. Pursuing vision leads to conflict. It always does. So it supports the, the, the statement in, in 2.18 and in 4.6 that the people responded and they moved. It celebrates the win before it recounts the struggle. And thirdly, we the readers get a sense of the scope and the humanity of the project. Those facing the opposition and the struggle are real people with real names, with families, with homes, with jobs, and each of them played a part in the project, and each of them faced and overcame opposition and obstacles that we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks in chapters 4 to 6. So that's why I think he puts it right here, right now. This isn't a story about Nehemiah. This is a story about God's people pursuing God's vision and seeing it happen. Second layer to this is the content. What's this chapter about? Well, here we have a chapter filled with names we would probably never give our own children, right? I mean, there's, there's not a lot of names here like, hey, yeah, I think that's one I'll name my kid. That's, they're hard to say. We don't know what they mean half the time. Pretty much everybody is introduced as the son of somebody else as if we're supposed to know the family links here, but we don't. We're told where these people lived, what section of the wall they repaired, and in a few instances, there's, there's a closing note that highlights something about that group or that family that was involved in the project. We'll look at kind of two, two different things here. First of all, right off the bat, it's the high priests and the other priests rebuilding and dedicating their part of the project, which is right around the temple. The account starts with the section of the walls closest to the temple undertaken by the priesthood. This is natural. This is central. This is why Nehemiah is there in the first place. This is about God's people's glory and honor in the eyes of the world around them. This is highly significant. Jerusalem was the city of God, the place where he had chosen for his name to dwell for his special people. The temple was central to that reality. The wall served not only to protect the inhabitants of the city, but to mark clear religious and theological boundaries. This was the city of Yahweh, God of Israel. And the importance of this is shown by the fact that it's, it's the only section of the wall that is dedicated. It, it is the priests consecrating it, sanctifying it, setting it apart 
for sacred use. This isn't merely a strategic social program or a military strategy. It's not just fixing something that's broken for the sake of fixing it. There is a theological reality at stake here. God chose his people to bear his name, to serve as his ambassadors to the nations. And with the city in ruins, with the, with the mocking and the ridicule of it being beaten down, surrounded by pagan nations, it ran completely counter to the intention of God and the mission of his people. There's a much bigger reality at stake here. It's not just a broken down city. It's a broken down witness that needs to be repaired. And that's going to come back a number of times because it's not just it's not just the city that's the problem. It's the reason why the city's in ruins that's really the problem. And that'll come up at the end of the book too. Because the city's lying in ruins because the people of Israel didn't live out their calling as the people of God to be a light to the nations. They wanted to keep it for themselves and they became very protective and inward focused. And when that happens, God says, that is not my intention for my people. Get out of your building. Get out of your city. I'm going to destroy this so that you get out. And you go to Babylon and you be a light in Babylon. You be a light in the most wicked place in the world. I'm going to send you there because you're not doing it by sitting at home. God sometimes has to move his people out of their comfort zone so that his mission is accomplished. See, the high priest undertook to, to build this wall is also instructive on another level too. Here are the spiritual leaders of Israel. The priesthood has to lead. It's why they're named first. As we work through our mission, vision, and values, it's very little use, and it is a waste of time if there is no clear intention to live it out from the top down and the bottom up, to live out our mission and values. Leadership matters when it comes to living out the vision of God. And here we see leaders that lead. Here's guys that said, Nehemiah isn't a priest. He's not a prophet. He's, he's just a blue-collar guy with a plan. And the spiritual leaders of Israel jump on board, and they're named first because that's who has to lead. And that's what we want to do, too, as elders and as pastors. We want to lead Gospel Chapel into the next reality that God has for us. Leadership matters when it comes to living out God's vision. And it spreads from there to various people from various places at various levels of involvement. The rest of the chapter really is, is an account of how diverse the, work, the workers were. Gives us a sense of the scope of the project. People come from all over the place. The surrounding villages and settlements, they join in the work. Some people are living in the city. They're working on a section of the wall that's close to their houses. Others are working on sections of the wall. Uh, but they're coming from other places. Some of them are, are goldsmiths, and some of them are perfume makers, and some of them are priests, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a mishmash of people, but they've got one purpose and one vision. There's also various levels of investment in the project. Some people felt called to leave their homes and their towns to come to the city to help. 
Their part was temporary, but it was costly. It meant that back home, their towns and cities were left more open to the possibility of retaliatory attack from opponents, and we'll see this in the next few chapters. It might have kept them home. Fear could have stopped them. But they moved anyway. They took time away from home. They took time away from work. They took time away from their fields and their flocks and, and, and their jobs. And they took time away from family to join what God was calling his people to do in this moment for a season. There's no indication these people stayed long-term in Jerusalem. But there was a time during the project where that was the case, where they had to stay put. These people came, but only for a season. Then there was those who worked who, who, who did work on the wall very close to their homes. People are needed to work on that which is closest to them and focus close to home. As especially in the second half of the chapter, you read, you know, this guy did this work and it was, you know, the work right across from his house or right next to this guy's house or right next to this house. And there's, there's, you know, God wasn't calling these people to leave their houses and go and work on another part of the wall. They had to work on what was right close to them. Sometimes what we need to do in pursuing God's mission, sometimes the ministry we need to commit ourselves to, to being involved in, is not necessarily at the church, but in our homes. Not everybody repaired the walls right close to the temple. They repaired the breaches in the walls close to their homes. You know, when we're aligning ourselves with God's vision, we'll find that there's always work to be done at home. I, I know that's true for me. You know, how am I going to do this? How am I going to repair some of those broken down walls in my own house, and my own family? But we need to commit to that work. For some of us, that may be the entirety of the calling. You know, sometimes you need to pull the plug on church and community involvements and focus on your family, focus on your marriage, focus on your kids or grandkids, focus on your own spiritual, emotional, uh, mental, relational, physical health. Sometimes it's just that piece of the wall that's attached to your house that needs attention that you're called to. Where and how we serve the purposes of God in our generation, in our city, and in our church, and in our homes can and will and should vary from person to person. There's great variety of investment and sacrifice and work done in this chapter. Not everyone got to work on the sheep gate. Somebody also had to repair the dung gate. You know, the sheep gate's the one that's really close to the temple. The dung gate's the one that's close to the garbage dump. Both needed repairing. Not everyone needed to leave home to do their part in fulfilling God's purposes, though some did. Our levels of what it will cost us personally in terms of time, effort, and finances can and will and should vary depending on what God is calling and equipping you to do for his purposes and his kingdom. You notice the variety in this chapter, not only where people coming from, but their skill sets. There's rulers, there's governors, there's goldsmiths, there's perfume makers, there's Levites, there's priests, temple servants, and a bunch of people whose profession isn't mentioned. But, 
you know, probably just farmers from the area. Not only is the variety of investment, but the variety of skills. Now, what does a perfume maker know about building a wall? Here's the thing. Sometimes being involved in ministry leads us to tasks that are totally outside of our wheelhouse and our abilities and giftings. Sometimes we even have to put down what we're good at to do what is needed. Like being a good goldsmith or a good perfume maker wasn't going to really help the wall get built all that well. You just needed people to move rocks. And sometimes we need to put down what we're good at and just move the rocks. Uh, a pastor, a friend of mine in Edmonton, told me a story once of a, of, a, of a friend of his who was a missionary overseas, and, and uh, this guy had no musical gifting at all. Like, he could press play on the tape recorder, but that was about as far as it went. Completely tone deaf, couldn't carry a note in a bucket. Got overseas and was doing mission work, and, and this people group desperately needed to sing songs in their, their language and, and have songs, and, and God for a season gifted him to be able to write songs and sing. And then as soon as he got back to North America, back to being a tone deaf, can't do anything with music. Sometimes God equips us for the moment. Doesn't mean it's permanent, but it's for a time. Sometimes we need to just be gifted and respond to what God equips us to do for what's needed right now. Second, 1 Corinthians 12, 4-6, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, it is the same God at work. And it's always for His purposes. God's work is always accomplished through the empowerment of his spirit and our natural gifts and strengths may or may not help be used to accomplish his purposes. There may be times where we need to get involved in a ministry that's not comfortable. Maybe it's helping in the kitchen. Maybe it's helping with the children's ministry up at the camp next week. Maybe it's deliberately inviting people into your home on a regular basis when you're really, really, really an introvert. You know, maybe that's just being part of the body when you'd rather just be alone. Remember, God often works through the least likely to succeed. You know, look at the list. I mean, you've, you've seen this probably posted a million times. You know, Moses is a murderer. David's an adulterer and a murderer. You know, look at Paul, look at the, you know, uh, random fisherman and, and a guy that would deny Jesus repeatedly. And, and the, the Bible's full of people who aren't heroes. They're full of people who are messed up that God works through. God often works through the least likely to succeed so that when all is said and done, we know that it is God who worked in and through us to achieve his purposes. God's vision for his people will be accomplished as his people embrace his work in them and for them and his spirit gifting and calling, which varies from person to person, but has one purpose. Jesus' purpose. 
when Dwight L. Moody said this, a great many people have got a false idea about the church. They've got an idea that the church is a place to rest, to get into a nice cushioned pew and contribute to the charities, listen to the minister, and do their share to keep the church out of bankruptcy. It's all they want. The idea of work for them, actual work of the church, never enters their mind. To move forward as the church to help people follow Jesus, to advance the kingdom of God is not the work of one person or one leadership team or one ministry or even one church. It's the work of the people of God called and gifted by his spirit. It's the responsibility of every follower of Jesus to discern where they need to be working and then get on with doing it and contributing to God's agenda. Nehemiah chapter 3 tells us that the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt. Nehemiah chapter 3 tells us about the variety of people from all walks of life, skills, backgrounds, social status, economic status. They all came together for one purpose and one vision. When that happens, God moves in marvelous ways. 52 days. The project's completed. 52 days after decades and decades of living in rubble, the wall's finished. The gates are up. The enemies are on the outside going, wow, they actually did that. The people inside ready to take the next step, which is in Nehemiah chapter 8 and beyond, where they just commit themselves once again to following God and living out his word. The walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt when a variety of people from various walks of life, various skill sets, various backgrounds came together for one purpose. And when the church unites around God's purposes, empowered by his spirit, unified in mission, working together, the kingdom of God will be furthered in this world and his work will be done. And that's a calling for us today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the fact that we have these passages in Scripture that on first reading, we just glaze over. But when we stop and think, and when we look at the variety of people that you involve in your purposes, we look at that throughout Scripture, we see a bunch of messed up people who are simply called into relationship with you, Lord, and then included in what you're doing in the world so that your name would be glorified, so that people would know that, that you are God. We see that through the, the life of Moses, the life of David, the life of Paul and Peter, the other apostles and the prophets, just you know, Amos, the shepherd from Tekoa, becomes a prophet. Because your spirit empowers your people for your mission. Lord, would you awaken our hearts to the mission that you have for us. And Lord, wherever you put us on that wall to rebuild, so that the, the, the name of Jesus would be lifted up. 
so that the glory of God would shine forth. Lord, would you help us to commit to doing what you've gifted and called us for, or maybe what you're asking us to do that's going to really stretch us. Lord, the, the people of Jerusalem didn't respond because Nehemiah was suddenly had something great. They responded because he told the people what you had done. And so, Lord, may we look at what you have done, especially in our Lord Jesus Christ, significantly, centrally, absolutely, the centrality of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And then, Lord, may we join you on the mission you have right now, that we would go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything you've commanded us. Lord, help us to follow you and then invite others to join on that journey of following Jesus together. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Throughout this series, the last words I wanted to leave with you is a benediction as we go through this book, and then we're going to go into actually the book of Malachi after we're done Nehemiah, because I think historically that fits. And it, it shows us how much more work there needed to be done rather than just the wall. It was a work of the heart that needed to happen, and God's done that. But Hebrews chapter 13, this is our benediction for today. Again, now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All right, so in the next week, you will get an email. We'll post all the information, 9.30 at the Pines Bible Camp next week. We will have children's uh, ministry available. And uh, if you can contact Heather, if you would like to help with that, that'd be great. She's trying to get a schedule together for that. And uh, thank you so much. Uh, see you next week at the camp. And uh, hope to see more of you uh, here next week. If you're watching, um, live stream will not happen next week because we can't do that from the camp, but we will upload a recording from the camp uh, later in the day. So uh, thank you for joining us online. And uh, we'll see you next week, hopefully at the camp. If not, the uh, recording will be posted probably early afternoon next week. Thanks and have a great week.